Welcome to Exhibition History, the place to be for the greatest stories the world has ever known. Join us for each sword episode where we cover the greatest adventures and voyages of the past. Exhibition History Episode 5 The Czechoslovak Legions At the dawn of the 20th century, the Austro-Hungarian Empire found itself in an unenviable position. Straddling much of Central Europe, Austria-Hungary was ruling over vast swaths of lands composed of a great multitude of peoples, Germans, Hungarians, Serbs, Croats, Bosnians, and Slavs, among many others. Ruled by the Habsburg family, ethnic Germans, the unity of the multi-ethnic empire had been fragile for nearly a century as the leading imperial politicians had been contending with the never-ending series of growing nationalistic sentiments since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Decades prior, the Austrian Empire had nearly exploded into numerous smaller nation-states. Racked by internal unrest, the empire barely survived the tumultuous revolutions of 1848, a time where almost every single one of the empire's subject people had gunned for additional power, if not outright independence. In 1867, after much internal and external pressure, the Austrian Empire was forced to split into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a dual monarchy in which a single German emperor would rule over both the Austrian Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary. Though the empire's Hungarian population was elated, this left many more nationalities out in the cold, most notably the Slavs. As an ethnic group, the Slavs are composed of a large number of nationalities spread throughout Central, Southern, and Eastern Europe, who, within the confines of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, circa 1900, were more numerous than either their German or their Hungarian counterparts. Unfortunately for the Slavs, despite their numerical strength, they held relatively little political power, and were often too divided, geographically or otherwise, to unify enough to effectively challenge the Germans or Hungarians in the political arena. However, their continual subservience was growing weary. Europe had spent most of the 19th century embracing a wide variety of nationalistic ideals, something that had found a receptive audience within the Austro-Hungarian Empire's Slavic populations. Out of all of Europe's nationalistic offshoots, the most important to us in this episode is the idea of Pan-Slavism. Born in the 16th century, but formally solidifying itself in the revolutionary forge that was the year 1848, Pan-Slavism focused on the belief that all Slavic speakers, nationalities, and cultures should unify for the advancement and betterment of the greater Slavic people. And it spread like wildfire, not just in the confines of the empire, but across the lands of Eastern Europe and the Balkans as well. In 1878, six of the European great powers, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Russia, and Austria-Hungary, Four upstart Balkan states, Greece, Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro, and the long-declining Ottoman Empire came together at the Congress of Berlin. Over the past few years leading up to the conference, the Ottomans had rapidly lost their hold over many of the South Slavic peoples of the Balkans, as Serbs, Bulgarians, Bosnians, and Herzegovinians all worked to throw off their respective Turkish yokes. The Russian Empire, who saw themselves as the defender of the Slavic people, was more than happy to step in. The ensuing Russo-Turkish war had been raging for only a year before the Congress convened, but had already seen a potent Russian-led coalition of mostly Slavic forces push the Turks all the way to the walls of Constantinople. Although Russia's armed forces provided the backbone of the war effort against the Ottomans, minor nations such as Serbia and Bulgaria had played a crucial role in their side's offensive success. But despite their victories, the walls of Constantinople would be as far as the Slavic coalition would advance, their efforts halted only by the timely arrival of European diplomats in favor of the Ottomans. Now in Berlin, representatives from each of the war's participants, as well as numerous diplomats from all across Europe, a Congress, if you will, enter the negotiation table. Each of the aforementioned six great powers and four Balkan upstarts had a vested interest in how exactly the defeated Ottomans were dealt with. 
The reasons why Britain, France, and the rest of the European powers got involved are complicated, but can be boiled down to a functioning Ottoman Empire serves as a counterbalance to Russian power. The exact political details are outside the lens of this podcast, they go back many decades, but regardless, they were there. Upon the conclusion of negotiations, and after much deliberation, the Congress of Berlin gave the Russian coalition its rightful victory at the tremendous expense of the Ottomans, wrenching away much of the Balkans from their grasp. In turn, the Balkans were entirely reorganized, resulting in the independence of Montenegro, Romania, Bulgaria, and most importantly for us right now, Serbia. Now of course, you're probably wondering, what does Serbian independence have to do with Czechoslovakian legions? And my answer is this, just hold on, we're getting there. Though Serbia had certainly come out on top, they had emerged from the Congress without the realization of all their goals. They had laid claim to the region of Bosnia-Herzegovina, lands populated by fellow southern Slavs, but were denied. Surely, you may be thinking, this must mean that the Bosnians would be given their own independent state. Well, no. As the region had once been a part of the Serbian Empire long ago, Serbia was absolutely incensed when the Bosnian territory wasn't bestowed upon them or granted their own independence. Instead, Bosnia was essentially gifted to the Austro-Hungarians, who, if you may recall, didn't do a damn thing to aid the Balkans in their struggle against the Ottomans. The handing over of Slavic lands and peoples from the Ottomans to the Austrians, yet another foreign empire, was inexcusable, and there would be consequences. On the morning of June 28, 1914, a small motorcade meandered through the streets of Sarajevo, in Austro-Hungarian-ruled Bosnia. In a third car sat Sophie, the Duchess of Hohenberg, sitting alongside her husband, Archduke Franz Ferdinand Karl Ludwig Josef Maria, the heir presumptive to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Archduke had traveled to Bosnia on what was essentially a goodwill mission, with an aim to win over his South Slavic people, and if the name Archduke Franz Ferdinand rings a bell, you may recall exactly how this mission ends. The Bosnians had long been chafing under Austrian rule, and were increasingly looking towards Serbia as a kind of liberator against their German overlords. In response, powerful figures in the imperial monarchy wanted Serbia crushed, snuffing out even the mere thought of a so-called Greater Serbia involving a Serbo-Bosnian Union. However, the Archduke favored a different approach. Antagonizing Serbia, he believed, would only push them closer to the Russian Empire, composed of and led by fellow Slavs, and any outright aggression between the dual monarchy and Serbia would inevitably draw Russia into a war opposite Austria-Hungary. Such a conflict, the Archduke knew, would be akin to national suicide. Rather, he reasoned, it was best for the empire to win over Bosnia and build positive relations with Serbia, preferably, if possible, by removing them from the Russian sphere of influence and co-opting them into their own Austro-Hungarian sphere. Upon his ascension to the throne, sooner rather than later, on account of his father Franz Josef's age, the Archduke wished to turn the Austro-Hungarian dual monarchy into a triple crown, granting the Slavs their own kingdom in line with the Hungarians, and hopefully easing the social tensions which so threatened his alien empire. His dream would die with him. Unbeknownst to imperial authorities, within the city of Sarajevo were multiple members of the pan-Serb movement Young Bosnia, whose activists aimed to unite all South Slavic people under the banners of Serbia. As the motorcade made its way to the town hall, a would-be assassin emerged from the crowd and threw a handheld bomb. Bouncing off one of the cars, it landed on a road behind a convoy and exploded, showering dozens of innocent bystanders with shrapnel. As the crowd surrounded and physically beat the assassin as a warm-up before his eventual arrest, the Archduke's motorcade double-timed it to Sarajevo Town Hall. The Archduke and his wife, upon their arrival, thought it best to cancel the day's events, and instead chose to visit the hospital and pay respects to those wounded in the bombing. The military governor of Bosnia, Oskar Podioric, agreed, asking those who opposed, 
Do you think Sarajevo is full of assassins? Though it was a rhetorical question, he soon received an answer. At approximately 11 a.m., the Archduke's motorcade left the town hall and began to make for the nearby hospital. Along the way, the car carrying the Archduke and his wife made a wrong turn, and, after some confusion, began to turn around. As the car slowly struggled through its maneuvers, a stranger walked up to the side of the car, gazing upon the exposed passengers. This stranger, a young Bosnian Serb, was yet another assassin for young Bosnia, a radical youth who bore the now infamous name Gavrilo Princep. He fired only twice, once into the Archduke and once into his wife, the opening shots of the First World War. Subsequent Austro-Hungarian investigations revealed that young Bosnia did not act alone. The overall assassination was found to have been planned by, and even included, Serbian military officers and officials, members of a secret Serbian military society referred to only as unification or death, or perhaps better known as the Black Hand. Upon the revelation that the Serbian army had had a hand in the assassination, relations between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Kingdom of Serbia quickly turned from dangerously tenuous to the absolute worst. What followed the assassination through the month of July 1914 can best be described as a diplomatic explosion on a continental scale. To dive into the July crisis at any level is unfortunately outside of the lens of this episode. Though the details are extensive, the outcome was nonetheless potent. Europe was now at war. Now, we're a bit of the way into the episode, and you're probably wondering why all I've talked about thus far has been about Serbs, Austro-Hungarians, Pan-Slavism, Pan-Serbism, and the Bosnians, and the Turks, and the Russians, and the Germans. For an episode about the Czechoslovak Legion, I haven't even mentioned the Czechs or the Slovaks. Well, fret not, intrepid listener, because all that changes now. You see, the southern Slavs of the Balkans were not the only ones fighting for their own nation. Located in the northern regions of the Austro-Hungarian Empire lied the historical lands of Bohemia, Moravia, and Slovakia. Rich with resources and rather thickly populated, the regions had once served as mighty power bases for their respective inhabitants, the Czechs and Slovaks. These western Slavs had a history both long and proud, playing a key part in Central European affairs that would go on to have wide-reaching effects across the entire world. But unfortunately for them, they were victims of geography. Always surrounded by foreign powers, their location in the heart of Central Europe eventually proved to be their demise, as they were always in conflict with their neighbors, most prominently the Austrians and Hungarians. By 1914, Slovakia had long been a part of Greater Hungary, and had been resisting cultural Hungarization for centuries, at least since their imperial annexation in the early 1500s. As for the Czechs, the defeat of the Kingdom of Bohemia at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620, a prominent engagement in Europe's devastating Thirty Years' War, had cemented Austrian rule over the Czech heartland, and formally united the Czechs and Slovaks as subjects under the crown of the Austrian Habsburg dynasty. But though they were imperially unified, the two peoples would embark on two wildly separate paths within the empire. The Slovaks, subsumed by the Hungarians and subjected to their whims, remained a rural agricultural people and had only just begun to industrialize upon the eve of the First World War. Their Czech cousins, meanwhile, had vigorously pushed to industrialize as fast as possible, greatly expanding their industrial capacity and heavily modernizing the Czech realm. Despite these differences, the Czechs and Slovaks held a crucial position in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Their lands were the industrial core of Austria-Hungary, and, though minorities, together the two groups made up the lion's share of the empire's Slavs, who themselves were a full half of the imperial population. On top of these raw numbers, they alone also held the core industrial lands of the empire. Nowhere else within the Austro-Hungarian realm would you find such a dense concentration of industrial might. Thus, they were absolutely critical to the survival of the empire. But as the storm clouds of World War I rapidly approached, 
the Czechs and Slovaks were anything other than willing participants. Although the Czechs and Slovaks had embarked on separate paths within the empire, over time they had found themselves slowly coming back together. In the decades leading up to World War I, the idea of a unified Czechoslovak identity began to gather steam. Starting around the turn of the 19th century and spurred on by their vigorous industrialization and rising middle class, the Czechs had been experiencing a great national revival for some time and had feverishly pushed for greater autonomy within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Slovaks, meanwhile, had grown weary of living under Hungarian dominion and, in turn, had been pushing for greater autonomy themselves in the hope that they would be better able to retain their culture and national identity. For a while, the idea of increased autonomy was popular only with the Czech and Slovak intellectual elites. This, as well as almost everything else, changed with the eruption of war. With the outbreak of World War I, the Czechs and Slovaks found themselves in a less-than-ideal position. Fighting against the Allied Entente powers, they would have to wage a war alongside their alien overlords against fellow Slavs, including not just the Russians and Serbs, but also any fellow Czech or Slovak émigrés in the armies of the Entente, those who had emigrated from the increasingly troubled Austro-Hungarian Empire to start anew someplace else. One such émigré, though he did not take part in any of the fighting, was a certain Tomas Masaryk, a Slovak-born intellectual and leading Czech political figure. Leaving Austria-Hungary shortly after war was declared, he fled for Western Europe where he would meet the Entente leadership, campaigning against Germany and Austria-Hungary while championing Czech and Slovak liberation. As he traveled, he gave rise to the movement of Czechoslovakism, a united body of Czechs and Slovaks, entirely free and independent from any foreign power. To many, it was a cause worth fighting for. As Czech and Slovak citizens of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were dragged to the front line kicking and screaming with low morale, beaten before they had ever reached the battlefield, great flocks of Czechoslovaks rushed to the recruiting stations of France and Russia, inspired by the movement and eager to volunteer, each man desiring to see his nation freed. The Entente powers, eager to take advantage of anyone willing to take up arms against their adversaries, were for the most part receptive to the creation of Czechoslovak units. The first of these Czechoslovak formations was the Rota Nezdar, composed of just over 300 Czechoslovak soldiers who had volunteered to join the ranks of the French army. Though not a legion in its own right on account of its limited numbers, the element was nonetheless formally established on August 31st, 1914. After two months of training, the men were officially incorporated into the French army. Unable to join the regular line units themselves on account of their ethnic background, the Rota Nezdar was instead rolled into a larger Moroccan formation organized under the esteemed French Foreign Legion. It was here, within a Moroccan battalion and serving under French officers, that Rota Nezdar would see its share of the war. Initially, the unit was assigned to the Franco-German border, where they would only see relatively limited engagements, as the French High Command knew that there were far too few Czechoslovaks in France to replenish any sizable losses. There they would sit until early 1915, when, needed for their manpower, they were transferred to northern France and tossed into the meat grinder better known as the Belgian border, sitting opposite a battle-hardened German army. They were now positioned in the vicinity of the town of Arras, one of the hottest sectors of the Western Front, as evidenced by what are now referred to as the Battles of Arras. Yes, battles, plural, known for playing host to some of the most infamous fighting of the war. In early summer 1915, Rhoda Nazdar finally got the action they were looking for, and were called to go over the top, that is, to leave their trenches, and assault the fortified German positions opposite them. Bogged down by mud and slowed by barbed wire, they crossed no man's land under withering fire, easy targets for the German machine gunners. Sprinting across the open ground, the Czechoslovaks took heavy casualties, though they succeeded in their objective of reaching the dug in German positions. 
Jumping into the trenches, fierce close-quarters combat ensued as men battled for their lives, grappling with each other in the close confines of the zigzagging network of trenches. Rifles barked at point-blank range as bayonets and trench knives found their marks, each ending one of the countless desperate grapples between doomed men. The death count rose on both sides as the bodies of vanquished Czechoslovaks and Germans began to fall one atop the other. Painfully, the Czechoslovaks slowly gained the upper hand, eventually wresting the position from the Germans in its entirety. Despite their egregious casualties, victory belonged to Rota Nazdar. This victory, however, had come at a staggering cost. As a whole, the company of 300 men had lost every one of their commissioned officers, and at final count, possessed just over 70 men left standing, a casualty rate of 75%. Though they had been victorious, the French High Command was unable to replenish the company with enough Czechoslovak soldiers to rebuild their shattered formation. As a result, Rodin Azdar was unceremoniously disbanded, and its battle-hardened survivors were spread throughout beleaguered French units all across the front. Although the 1915 Battle of Arras has today unfortunately become a minor footnote in the annals of the war, largely overshadowed by its larger sister battles in 1914 and 1917, the victory of Rota Nazdar served as a great boon to Czechoslovakism, not only in Europe, but worldwide. The precedent had just been set for independent Czechoslovak formations across the Entente. Ethnic Czechoslovaks flooded the French recruiting stations in far larger numbers than before, their numbers bolstered by volunteers from the United States, Britain, Canada, and all across Europe, generated enough support from French high command that the French army would go on to forge two brand new units, the 21st and 22nd Czechoslovak Rifle Regiments, in early 1918. Only a few months later, the two regiments would be folded into a greater Czechoslovak brigade, numbering 10,000 men strong. Posted on France's northeastern border along the Ardennes, the unit would see some of the final actions of World War I, as the German Empire took its last gasps just before the cessation of hostilities. Pivoting away from France, we now focus in on the Kingdom of Italy, who was far slower than France to adopt Czechoslovak units for two big reasons. The first was political. Government support of an independent Czechoslovak formation meant publicly supporting Czechoslovakism, and the foundation of a Czechoslovak state implied the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And though Italy and Austria-Hungary had been at each other's throats for decades, the Italian leadership wasn't too keen on the idea. After all, unified Italy was a recent invention, circa 1871, and to support the dissolution of your enemy at the cost of inspiring your homegrown dissidents to do the same to you is more than a little problematic. The second reason is that, similar to France, there just weren't enough Czechoslovaks in Italy to scrape together anything remotely similar to an actual formation. The Czechoslovak population in Italy, by official count, numbered only in the hundreds, rather than the thousands in France or tens of thousands in Russia. But though there weren't enough Czechoslovaks to even begin, they would soon come in droves. During a visit to Italy in April 1916, General Milan Stefanik, a Slovak proponent of Czechoslovakism and a former student of Tomas Masaryk, tried to persuade the Italian government to adopt the idea of Czechoslovakism and to create formations of Czechoslovak troops. He was initially denied on account of the reasons previously discussed, but though Italian high command shot down the idea, the ball had already been rolling on the tactical level for some time. On multiple occasions, ethnically Czechoslovak soldiers fighting for Austria-Hungary would desert their posts and make their way to the Italian lines opposite them. Once there, they would provide Italian commanders and intelligence services with valuable information on Austro-Hungarian war plans, at times leading to great Italian success. On August 11, 1916 in particular, a Czech officer deserted his position and reached Italian lines with critical information in regard to Austro-Hungarian plans concerning a local plateau that dominated the battlefield. Utilizing this new information, the Italians conducted an operation that resulted not only in tremendous success, 
but also led to the desertion and defection of an entire battalion's worth of Czechoslovak soldiers to the Italian side. Now, not only did the idea of an Italian Czechoslovak legion, air quotes, officially have proven merit, it now had the bodies to become a reality. Riding the wave of success, the Czechoslovak cause quickly garnered support amongst the Italian leadership and led to the creation of the Italian Committee of Czechoslovak Independence. The Italian High Command, greatly interested in the Czechoslovak effectiveness at undermining Austro-Hungarian warfighting capabilities, was curious as to what could be accomplished on the battlefield should they be integrated into the larger war effort. And thus, the exploratory Czechoslovakia was born. The unit was made up predominantly of Czechoslovak volunteers from Italian prisoner of war camps. They were offered the chance to turn on the dying empire that force-fed them into a mess they wanted no part in, and in return were promised the chance to fight for an independent homeland. For many, it was the deal of a lifetime. The primary goal of the exploratory Czechoslovakia was, as its translated name, the Czechoslovak Scouts, suggests, was to provide Italian units with superior reconnaissance and intelligence-gathering capabilities, utilizing Czechoslovak knowledge of Austro-Hungarian strategy to get far closer to hostile units than most Italians ever could. But once close to the enemy, the job wasn't to simply observe and report. Using their linguistic capabilities, the exploratories would communicate with Slavic soldiers in their own tongues, enticing them to defect to the Italian side and join their cause. Using specific codenames and getting the would-be defectors in on the act, their missions would prove to be rather successful. While the exploratory would mostly bring over individual soldiers or those in small groups, from time to time they would return to Italian lines with entire formations in tow, including at one point almost an entire battalion of Slavic deserters. Though they continually rung up impressive results, more often than not, the exploratory Czechoslovakia were commonly denied the ability to enact decisive change on the battlefield, unable to overcome the suffocating weight of the overly cautious and at times completely inept Italian senior leadership. Interestingly enough, this inept leadership would be their saving grace. In a twist of fate, the mistakes of the bumbling Italian high command greatly propelled the Czechoslovak position in Italy to new heights, though more so out of desperation than anything else. In the autumn of 1917, the Kingdom of Italy found itself in dire straits. The Austro-Hungarians, aided by crack German stormtroopers, had punched a hole straight through the center of the Italian Second Army. Thrown into utter disarray, the subsequent retreat quickly turned into a devastating rout as Austro-Hungarian soldiers viciously hounded the Italians, ambushing and annihilating any stragglers or anyone brave enough to put together a rear guard. The Battle of Caporetto, as the disaster was later called, led to the capture or outright desertion of over 300,000 Italian soldiers, with total casualties numbering approximately half a million men. The attacking Austro-Hungarians, flush with victory, pressed so far into northern Italy that they were halted only a mere 30 kilometers north of Venice. The loss of so many men at Caporetto left the Italian High Command desperate to find a solution to the manpower dilemma, knowing that they would need as many able-bodied fighting men as possible to replace their horrific losses. Oddly enough, this was the moment the Czechoslovak cause was looking for. Needing to plug the gaps in the front line, the Italian war effort took one look at the effectiveness of the exploratory Czechoslovakia, and, turning to the thousands of Czechoslovaks held in Italian captivity, they knew what they had to do. Representing the Czechoslovak National Council, General Stefanik led his people through the negotiations and came out on top. On April 21, 1918, the Italian Czechoslovak Legion was officially created. The unit was originally composed of over 13,000 soldiers and nearly 500 officers, almost all of them former soldiers of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and drawn from various prisoner of war labor camps. Organized initially into four rifle regiments, the 31st through 34th, they were then folded into two rifle brigades, all falling in under the 6th Division, Czechoslovak. 
The Legion would see a considerable amount of action on the Italian front, helping to stem the tide of Austro-Hungarian forces and taking part in numerous decisive engagements, often playing a hand in reclaiming much of the lands lost in the aftermath of Caporetto. Their successes in battle, while often fighting for the high ground in the rugged mountains of northeastern Italy, would give reason for the Legion's numbers to rise even further, reining in enough Czechoslovak captives to draw from them an additional regiment, the 35th. At around the same time, the exploratory Czechoslovakia, who had until then remained independent of the Legion in their own right, and who had seen copious amounts of action themselves, was converted to the 39th Rifle Regiment and placed under Legion control. Buoyed by their increase in numbers, the Legion now counted some 25,000 men under their banner. It had swelled to such a size that it had been reorganized into not just the 6th Division Czechoslovak, but the 7th as well. Similar to their French counterparts, the Legion as a whole would see conflict and numerous engagements at the close of the war, nipping at the heels of the Austro-Hungarians as they were continually forced to give ground. The Legion, forged in the aftermath of Caporetto, would itself participate in the most decisive battle of the Italian front, the Battle of Vittorio Veneto, entirely disintegrating the 61 divisions arrayed in opposition, and all but guaranteeing the defeat and dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Immediately following the Italian victory on November 3rd, the entirety of Austro-Hungarian armed forces ceased all hostilities along the Italian front. The following day, the entire theater of operations fell silent. Less than a week later, on November 11, 1918, the German Empire capitulated, signing the armistice that effectively ended the First World War. This, however, was not the end of the Czechoslovak troubles, not only for their burgeoning nation, but for its soldiers worldwide. As the Great War came to a close, a world away in far-off Siberia, another Czechoslovak legion was cut off, surrounded, and fighting for their very lives. As the various great powers mobilized their respective armies upon the outbreak of World War I, so too did the Russian Empire. Always a beast to reckon with in regard to her overwhelming advantage in manpower, the Empire had no shortage of Czechoslovaks to spare. Whereas France and Italy had only paltry populations present upon their declarations of war, Russia boasted a population of well over 100,000 Czechoslovak men and women, many of them not just expats, but actual imperial citizens. The conception of the Russian Czechoslovak Legion began almost immediately after the declaration of hostilities. Wanting to fight the tyrannical oppressor of their homeland, and hoping that wartime performance on behalf of Russia would grant them its independence, the Czechoslovak population eagerly swarmed the recruiting stations. Though Imperial Russian High Command wasn't too keen on national units in their army, on account of not wanting to foster separatist ideas within their multi-ethnic empire, the opportunity was too good to pass up. On August 5, 1914, the green light was given for the creation of a Czechoslovak military formation, a single battalion composed of four separate companies, all drawn from the Czech and Slovak populations of the Russian Empire. Nicknamed the Česka Druzina, or Czech Companions in English, the unit would serve in much the same capacity as its cousins in the exploratory Czechoslovakia, focusing mostly on battlefield reconnaissance, small unit engagements, and the subversion of Austro-Hungarian soldiers. As the war dragged on, the Druzina continually proved their worth, accomplishing great local successes that, though eclipsed by the larger war efforts, victories, and defeats, did much to add credence to their calls for an expanded Czechoslovak military formation. Any expansion, however, much again like their cousins in Italy, could only logistically be accomplished through the recruitment of Czechoslovak prisoners of war captured from the ranks of Austria-Hungary. The method was both practical, as we saw in Italy, and feasible on account of the rampant popularity of Czechoslovakism in the ranks, but the Imperial Russian High Command was still not fully on board with the idea of increasing the size of such a nationalistic powder keg of a unit. On paper, the poor response of the Russian military high command may have officially burdened the Druzina by bureaucratic red tape, but in reality, it didn't have much effect at all. 
The Druzina, out of necessity, had for years already been recruiting Czechoslovak prisoners of war, often off the books or through agreements with local and regional Russian authorities, almost since the start of the war. With their numbers surging on account of the continual rush of volunteers, whether private citizens or POWs, the Druzina added an additional battalion in 1916 and was in turn rebranded the 1st Czechoslovak Rifle Regiment. In only a matter of months, two more rifle regiments would be tacked on and the formation would be reorganized as the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade. Though relatively undertrained, they had some of the highest morale in the Imperial Army, and it would serve them well in the actions to come. On the first day of July 1917, the Russian Provisional Government launched a desperate offensive in an effort to gain a much-needed victory. Only a few months prior, in the face of a popular revolution, Tsar Nicholas II had abdicated the throne, spelling the end of the Russian Empire and the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty. Russia was now in the hands of two jointly ruling but separate powers, the Provisional Government, representing the official Russian state and the traditional aristocracy, and the Bolsheviks, a loose body of far-left Marxist committees. Yes, those Marxists, the communist ones. The provisional government, clinging to the continually eroding power they still had and dealing with a population fed up with the war, gambled on one last offensive to gain political points at home. Named the Kerensky Offensive in honor of the provisional government's minister of war, Alexander Kerensky, the effort was doomed from the start. The defending Germans and Austro-Hungarians were veteran soldiers in well-prepared dug-in positions, and the social upheaval on the home front, piloted by incessant Bolshevik agitators, had all but destroyed the common soldiers' willingness to fight throughout the vast majority of the Russian ranks. As a result, the Kerensky Offensive was an unmitigated disaster. Some 60,000 men had died, and the following social and political fallout essentially crippled the Russian war effort and more or less spelled the end of the provisional government. The final Russian offensive of the war, it could count from its efforts only a single notable victory. And it is here, unsurprisingly, where we can find the Czechoslovaks. As the offensive began, the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade found itself in the vicinity of the town of Zborov, located in modern-day Ukraine. Numbering some 3,500 men, their trench line stretched for 6 kilometers, although it wouldn't serve them much use, because you see, the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade was one of the few units in the Russian army to actually volunteer to attack enemy positions. Across no man's land opposite the brigade was an Austro-Hungarian unit who outnumbered the Czechoslovaks nearly 2 to 1. Interestingly enough, they too were predominantly composed of Czechoslovak soldiers. But this was no time for national sentiment. The battle was on. On July 1st, Russian artillery opened up on the Austro-Hungarian positions and pummeled them with high explosive shells for nearly the entire day. At 0515 the following morning, after an additional barrage, small units of men from the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade snuck across no man's land and threw hand grenades into the first line of opposing trenches, killing and wounding some but causing tremendous confusion among the Austro-Hungarian defenders. Capitalizing on the confusion, at 0800 hours, the Czechoslovak assault troops sprinted across no man's land under heavy fire and broke through the barbed wire obstacles protecting the defenders. Having gained a foothold in no man's land just shy of their adversary, the rest of the brigade streamed through the breaches, throwing themselves upon the enemy and storming the trench lines, one after the other. The assault continued well through the morning and early afternoon as the brigade fought tooth and nail to gain ground, braving rifle and machine gun fire to close with the enemy and engage them in the trenches. An extraordinarily bloody and personal business. Men who had been neighbors a decade ago now grappled with each other in deadly embrace. The painful screams of brother Slavs permeated the air, crying out in tongues understood by both sides. One side fought for a homeland, the other side fought to make it home. Finally, after a brutal slog, at 1500 hours that same day, the field belonged to the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade. All in all, 
The Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade had suffered almost a full third of their personnel killed or wounded. You had taken not one, not two, but four full lines of trenches from a hardened and well-prepared enemy. From the Austro-Hungarian defenders, they captured 3,300 prisoners, nearly as many men as their entire brigade at the start of the battle, as well as 20 artillery pieces and a copious amount of ammunition. Unfortunately, this victory was short-lived, and it would only prove to be the high watermark of the Kerensky Offensive. Every other unit had either been defeated or had outright refused to leave their trenches to begin with. Only a few days later, the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade would join the rest of the Russian army in a humiliating retreat giving up more than 200 kilometers of ground before the Russian High Command was able to stabilize the front. Like the Battle of Arras in France, the Battle of Zborov was rather insignificant in the grander scheme of the conflict and didn't have much of an impact on the greater war effort. But, also like Arras, the victory at Zborov served to be an incredible advertisement for the cause of greater Czechoslovakism and the increased establishment of Czechoslovak armed forces. As their popularity in Russia increased exponentially, the ruling authorities in Russia, on the verge of imploding, were forced to take another reluctant look at the idea of recruiting Czechoslovaks from Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war. Sure, they reasoned, we could give them their own national unit and promise them their homeland's independence, but what if the Latvians or Estonians get the same idea? Or worse, the Ukrainians? The expansion of the brigade just didn't have the popularity among the ruling policymakers, but it did have the backing of the Czechoslovak National Committee. Spearheaded by General Stefanik and Thomas Masaryk in the political arena, Spearheaded by General Stefanik and Thomas Masaryk in the political arena, and supported by the valorous acts of the combined Czechoslovak units under arms, the committee's power had been continually snowballing and growing in power with each passing day. Their position had grown so strong that they were even officially backed by the full political weight of the French government. At long last, in the summer of 1917, bending under the weight of international pressure, and admittedly, most likely out of an immediate need for volunteers, the Czechoslovak Rifle Brigade was officially allowed to recruit from POWs. Following the removal of the bureaucratic red tape, the brigade absolutely exploded in numbers and would add an additional regiment to their ranks in no time flat. Now four regiments strong, the brigade was reorganized and upgraded. It was now the first division of the Czechoslovak Corps in Russia, better known as the Czechoslovak Legion. In October 1917, the Legion would tack on yet another division to their ranks, increasing their combat strength twofold, and it could not have come at a better time. Weeks later, on the 7th of November 1917, the troubled Russian dual-power government finally imploded. In what is referred to as the October Revolution, on account of the Russian calendar system in use at the time, the Bolshevik wing of the government and their Marxist allies seized power in St. Petersburg in a nearly bloodless coup. The first domino to fall, the revolution spread like wildfire throughout the expanse of the dead Russian Empire and replaced the old monarchy with a new Bolshevik-led government, colloquially known as the Reds. Thus, Soviet Russia was born and it came into the world kicking and screaming, immediately beginning a bloody civil war against the resisting anti-communist coalition known as the White Movement. Now behind the reins of real power, the Soviet government's first order of business, well, besides starting the civil war, was to make peace overtures to the central powers, aiming to remove Russia entirely from the war. That way, they could focus their entire war effort against the real enemy, other Russians. As negotiations began, Thomas Masaryk traveled to Russia and personally began to lobby and plan for the evacuation of the Legion, who had now found themselves in a tumultuous sea of post-Czarist politics. But an evacuation would be no easy feat. On March 3, 1918, Soviet Russia officially withdrew itself from World War I with the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, ceding vast swaths of Eastern Europe to be either independent nations or vassals of the German Empire. The signing of the treaty had included no provisions in regard to the Czechoslovak Legion, and, numbering 40,000 men strong, they were now trapped and alone in the middle of the newly independent 
Ukrainian People's Republic, unable to march west on account of the continued hostility of the Central Powers. The original plan for their evacuation called for them to march through northern Russia to the far-off ports of Arkhangelsk and Murmansk. Once there, they would then board transport vessels and sail to France via the North Sea, where upon their landing, they would be united with the Czechoslovak units still in the fight on the Western Front. However, the plan was scrapped on account of the heavy presence of German submarines in the North Sea. The route was deemed far too risky. A new plan was drawn up, this time calling for the legions not to head north, but east for some 6,000 miles along the Trans-Siberian Railway, crossing the entire span of the Russian realm until they reached the Pacific port of Vladivostok. Now, the plan was certainly difficult to pull off in theory, but far more so to pull off in practice. In Ukraine, the legion was trapped in a foreign land with no friends or support of any kind to rely on, and only a sea of enemies as far as the eye could see. Having participated in the defeat of the Bolshevik Revolution in Kiev some weeks prior, their relations with the Soviets were as bad as they could get, meaning that in Ukraine, the legion was target number one for the increasingly powerful Red Army. As the Red Army inevitably descended upon Kiev to claim it for the revolution, bloodshed was only avoided on account of the French president, Raymond Poincaré, who had proclaimed the legion belonged to the French army the previous December. Afraid of drawing the ire of the Entente, who were already considering military action against the Soviets, the Red Army left the legion unmolested. But this by no means prevented any future hostilities. German and Austro-Hungarian units had continued to march east even after the treaty had been signed, garrisoning all the lands the Soviets had ceded, including the Ukraine. Starting a long trek east, the Czechoslovak legion left Kiev and marched north to the town of Bakhmar, home of a vital railway junction, intent on boarding trains to begin their journey home. But as the Czech legionnaires prepared for their departure, two entire German divisions bore down on them from the west. Moving in to occupy the area in the wake of the treaty, the Germans aggressively pushed for the town of Bakhmak, whose railway junction was crucial to enabling freedom of movement in northern Ukraine and would need to be seized if the central powers were to exert their influence over the area. Making matters worse for the already surprised Czechs, the attacking Germans viewed the Czechoslovaks as traitors to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the universal punishment for traitors was death. Forced to take up hasty defensive positions, on March 8th the Lone Legion squared off against both German divisions at once, beginning a bloody five-day slog that would see hundreds of men die on both sides. In danger of being surrounded, the legionnaires fought like cornered wolves, intent on fighting to the bitter end, knowing a summary execution waited them if captured. Though if they fought, no matter how dire the situation, they may yet earn their freedom. And that they did. Unable to break through the Czechoslovak lines and make any major gains, the Germans, thoroughly blood and demoralized, made a truce with the Legion on March 13th, allowing them to move eastbound by rail unchallenged. The Legion was even allowed to take with them their small number of armored war trains, heavily armored steam engines with armored cars, complete with artillery and machine gun platforms that essentially acted as mobile fortresses. As the Legion moved out of Ukraine and into Soviet Russia, the German and Austro-Hungarian forces, now sporting a new bloody nose, occupied the lands to their rear. Arriving in the town of Penza, the Legion and the Czechoslovak National Council made an agreement with Soviet officials. The Penza Agreement, drafted by prominent Soviet revolutionary Joseph Stalin, yes, that Joseph Stalin, the infamous communist dictator, though he wasn't quite there yet, stated that the Legion would be free to move east to continue their evacuation, but would have to surrender most of their weaponry to Bolshevik forces. This, quite understandably, did not sit well with the Legionnaires. The Legion and the Soviets had been eyeing each other since the start of the Bolshevik Revolution, each wary of the other trying to get in the way of their efforts. The Soviets were afraid the Czechoslovaks would formally side with the White Russians and fight to restore the Tsarist monarchy. The Legion, meanwhile, was afraid the Soviets would get in their way and prevent their evacuation, if not outright attack and annihilate them entirely. But the Legion's hands were tied. 
They needed the Soviet's blessing to travel along the rails, and having no real choice, are forced to sign the Penza Agreement on March 25th, surrendering their heavy weapons and machine guns, but refusing to give up their rifles and handguns. Moving east by rail, the Legion was soon strung out along the entire length of the Trans-Siberian Railway. It's at this point that I think I should mention that the Legion's movement wasn't just in one massive train. Rather, thousands of Legionnaires were spread throughout Russia on 63 separate trains, each with approximately 40 train cars from Penza in the west all the way to the Pacific port of Vladivostok in the east. The Soviet rail system as a whole was in a poor state of disrepair, and, with active soldiers, civilians, and prisoners of war all traveling to and fro, taking up the rails ahead, the Legion's travels were often halted and delayed, resulting in disjointed movements where one full train of Legionnaires would travel great distances unhindered, whereas another, originating from the same station, would only make it to the next province over the course of a week. Further complicating issues was the requirement of each fractured Legion element to coordinate with and get the approval of every Soviet leader in every town to continue their movement, a series of events that would have to be repeated ad nauseum over and over again with each passing town at each passing station by each incoming train. It was only a matter of time before the friction between the two sides erupted into open conflict. The final straw occurred on March 14th in the town of Chelyabinsk, just east of the Ural Mountains. Passing through the town was a train laden with Czechoslovak legionnaires who had stopped in order to conduct the necessary talks with the local Soviet officials to continue east. Heading west in the opposite direction, however, was a train from Siberia, full of German and Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war, many of them Hungarian. Sources differ in the exact details, it was, after all, a crowded train station, but the story goes that as the POW train passed by, a Hungarian soldier, seeing the mass of Czechoslovak traitors to his empire, threw a stone or perhaps a piece of iron from a stove, into the crowd. The object struck a legionnaire, either wounding or killing him, the accounts differ. Regardless, this, understandably, incensed the legionnaires, who in turn forced the train to stop, boarded the cars, found the man responsible for the attack, and killed him on the spot. Upon the slain of the Hungarian, the local Soviets intervened, arresting and imprisoning all the Czechoslovaks responsible for the killing, and throwing them into the town jail to wait for their inevitable execution. Absolutely outraged, the Legion element in Chelyabinsk took immediate action, seizing the town from the Soviets, freeing the captured Legionnaires, and capturing the town armory, complete with all the weapons and ammo that had lied within. Word of the action spread fast along the rails, and in no time at all, the entirety of the Czechoslovak Legion had rose up in arms and cut all ties with the Soviet authorities. Thus began the revolt of the Czechoslovak Legion. Hearing of this, Soviet revolutionary Leon Trotsky, if you know your European history, yes, that Trotsky, Stalin's rival, placed a kill-on-sight order on every single member of the Czechoslovak Legion in Russia. The Legion was now at war with Soviet Russia. Legion elements all along the railway were quick to act, seizing nearby towns both on and off the rails and securing a portion of the track so long that it stretched from Chelyabinsk and the Urals in the west to Irkutsk and Lake Baikal in the east, deep into Siberia. The Soviets were thrown back by the sudden setback, and the anti-communist collection of organizations making up the white Russians lunged at the opportunity, seizing the moment to launch their own offensives in unofficial conjunction with the Legion, beating back the reeling Soviets across Siberia and establishing a power base in Omsk, some 2,700 kilometers east of Moscow. On campaign throughout the summer of 1918, the Legion and white Russians wrested every single major population center east of the Urals from Soviet control, including such prominent cities as Yekaterinburg and Samara. In a weird twist of fate, members of the Legion itself narrowly miss an opportunity to change the course of Russian history forever. The former emperor of the Russian Empire, Tsar Nicholas II Romanov, having abdicated his throne in the face of the revolution, 
was held captive with his family by the Bolsheviks in the city of Yekaterinburg, where they had been under house arrest since April. As the Czechoslovak legion advanced on Yekaterinburg in July, some historians theorized the Bolsheviks feared they'd lose their royal hostages and so took drastic action. Late in the night of July 16th, Tsar Nicholas II, along with his wife the Empress Alexandra and their five children, were all forced into a basement by the Soviet captors. In the pre-dawn hours of July 17th, the Romanov family was executed by firing squad. The Legion would capture the city less than a week later. While the rescue of the royal family would have done little to undo the effects of the revolution or stop the red menace of the Soviet Union, it would have certainly erased a painful black mark from Russian history and would have certainly changed certain elements of the Russian Civil War in radically different ways. At the very least, it would have prevented a horribly botched and needlessly drawn out execution. But that alternate history type of stuff is outside of the scope of this show, so let's dive back in. As the successes of the Legion began to mount, they eventually came to garner international attention. Impressed at how easily the Legion asserted their dominance over the Soviets in Siberia and handily fighting off any counterattacks, the Entente leadership, still busy fighting the Central Powers in Western Europe, was more than pleased to offer aid. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, previously a staunch isolationist, pledged to contribute American military strength to the Legion's support, providing ships and logistics for their evacuation and planned return to Europe. The French government in Paris, meanwhile, doubled down on their claim of including the Legion in their ranks. Not only did they hail the Legion as an elite fighting force, but, more importantly, made it clear that aggressions against the Legion would be an act of war against the whole of the Entente. The Soviets, however, did not heed the warning. Away from the war rooms and back in Russia, the Legion was forging loose alliances with the white Russians in Siberia as the anti-Bolshevik forces began to publicly organize their own governments, free of immediate Soviet wrath. One of these anti-Bolshevik governments, known as the Kamuch, was even able to storm and seize the important city of Kazan in early August 1918, where they were even able to capture the Imperial Russian Gold Reserve. This was no small feat. At the time, it was the largest gold reserve in the world, worth billions of dollars in today's money. Not only victorious on the battlefield, but now flush with wealth, the white Russian governments, each substantially pressured by the Czechoslovak Legion, formally united in September, becoming the all-Russian provisional government. The strength of white Russia and the Legion was now officially on the rise, but as suddenly as they rose, deep cracks began to emerge in the foundation. On October 28, 1918, the nation of Czechoslovakia was declared a sovereign state. The Czechoslovak legions, fighting for their French, Italians, or for their very lives in the Siberian wilderness, had fought well enough to be rewarded with perhaps man's most prized possession, a place to call home. All across Europe, the scattered legionnaires began to leave the front lines and make their way to Prague. The Great War was over, but the war at home had only just begun, and every good Czechoslovak was needed at home to build their hard-fought state from the ground up. The legion in Russia, however, could do no such thing. Their war was still raging on. Though in late 1918, it quickly began to turn into a disaster. Despite the advances the Legion had made in the summer, by the start of autumn, the Red Army had begun to retake most of the ground lost to the anti-Bolshevik forces only a few months prior. A Soviet counterattack had captured Kazan in September, ushering it back into the Bolshevik fold only one month after the Whites had liberated it, the Soviets following up the victory with the seizures of Samara in early October. The White Army, once seemingly unstoppable, was now in full retreat. This was not the Legion's war. They had taken up arms to free their native lands, lands which were now entirely free of foreign rule. They had rose up for the cause of Czechoslovakism and had been rewarded in turn with a state to call their own. The war they had sworn to fight for had ended. Their cause realized. They had no stake in Russia's civil war. They were but survivors, left adrift along the rails, doing what they could to reach their new home in one piece. 
but what was supposed to be an evacuation had turned into an entire campaign. The legionnaires were tenacious and determined, true, but for every man who fell, there was no one to take his place. There were no reinforcements. There were only fresh graves. The legion was thousands of miles from home, and they didn't belong. They had paid far too much in blood, and were quickly reaching the breaking point. The morale of the legion, already wavering, was shattered on November 18th when a coup in Omsk overthrew the all-Russian provisional government and replaced it with a dictatorship under Admiral Alexander Kolchak, now the supreme leader and commander-in-chief of all Russian land and sea forces. That was his title. This was the nail in the coffin for the legion's war effort. Though the new Kolchak government was able to stabilize the situation against the Reds, the legion was done serving the role of an active participant in the conflict. The White Russian Alliance had proved fragile and prone to bitter infighting that threatened the organization from within. How can you fight against an external enemy if your alleged allies are just as willing to draw your blood? The coup shattered any and all faith the Legion held in the White Russian cause. As the frigid winter of 1918 gave way to the opening months of 1919, the war-weary Legion had withdrawn themselves from the front line and instead opted to guard the Trans-Siberian Railway, Kolchak's only supply route, from Bolshevik partisan attacks. Though vital... The tasking was relatively quiet, the Legion doing what they could to retain what dwindling manpower they had left. As the months of 1919 passed by, from spring to summer to autumn, the Legion's decision to remove itself from the heavy fighting was justified. Soviet offensives against Kolchak's forces had absolutely battered the White forces, taking much of Western Siberia and forcing Kolchak to steadily give ground. The Whites would continue to put up what resistance they could until the fateful day of November 14th, upon which the Soviets captured Omsk, the seat of the Kolchak government. Their capital having fallen, the end seemed near. The writing was on the wall, and White Russian forces began to surrender en masse, although many chose to flee east through Siberia, beginning what would be known as the Great Siberian Ice March. Siberia's limited number of railroads were flooded with train cars packed full of desperate men, fleeing an enemy to the west, but harried the entire way by sudden Bolshevik uprisings in the population centers along the track east. The soldiers of the White Army could find no respite, each small unit doing what they could to press on eastwards in panicked flight. It was at this point that the Czechoslovak Legion, having come so far only to watch their allies scatter and flee, had reached the breaking point. Enough was enough. The Legion officially declared their neutrality, refusing to act against the advancing Soviets and doing nothing to suppress the scattered Bolshevik rebellions. They had had more than their fair share of the war, and, understandably, won it out. But how? Declaring neutrality does nothing if your enemy continues to recognize you as a hostile threat, and with the Soviets powering through any token defenders, certainly they'd relish the chance to destroy the Legion once and for all. The Legion needed a way out, but the rails east were backed up by the fleeing loyalists. No one was going anywhere. The survival of the Legion depended on a diplomatic solution in order to buy their freedom. But what were the odds of finding one of those in the middle of a war zone? As luck would have it, their saving grace was located on the railway just east of Irkutsk, a Russian city nestled deep in the Siberian interior and just north of the Mongolian border. The train carrying Admiral Kolchak, his personal bodyguard, and the Russian Imperial Gold Reserve were reported to have been forced to stop and were now stranded near the town of Niznoydinsk. Word quickly spread to the Legion forces in the area who descended on the train, capturing both Kolchak and the gold without a shot being fired. His bodyguards elected to abandon him, rather than lie dead in the snow. Now in possession of Kolchak, the Legion was ordered by Entente officials to escort him out of harm's way, deeming him vital to the future efforts to suppress the nascent Soviet Union. Bolshevik partisans, however, caught wind of this, and continually molested the eastward advance of the Legion, slowly bleeding the Legion one small skirmish at a time, a death by a thousand cuts. 
Taken in the situation at hand and wishing to save the lives of as many legionnaires as possible, the legion's leadership decided that the best course of action was to take what was perhaps the most controversial route. In a bid for self-preservation, to finally throw off the looming Soviet threat and to buy their freedom, it was decided that Kolchak would be turned over to Bolshevik revolutionaries in Irkutsk for them to do with him as they wish. And so, on February 7, 1920, Alexander Kolchak was executed by a Bolshevik firing squad in Irkutsk. Later that same day, the Legion signed an armistice with the Red Army in the area, guaranteeing the Legion's unmolested passage to Vladivostok on the condition that any and all gold from the Imperial Reserve was left behind in Soviet hands. With the armistice came peace, and those of the Legion who had yet to reach Vladivostok continued their evacuation east, now expedited by a Legion control of the railway and a lack of hostilities. The last of the Legion's trains would pass through Irkutsk on March 1st, 1919. Having trickled into the port of Vladivostok since 1918, the last of the soldiers of the Czechoslovak Legion in Russia finally boarded the final waiting ship and began their voyage home in September of 1920. In total, more than 60,000 soldiers, officers, wives, and children, they were in Siberia a long time, had left Vladivostok by sea on approximately 40 ships as a part of the Legion's evacuation. Some 4,000 more remained in Russia, permanently entombed in the Siberian permafrost, having given their lives so that others may live. But just because the Great War had come to an end, didn't mean that there was peace. As each of the legionnaires trickled into their hard-won home, they found themselves confronted with the challenge of defending Czechoslovakia's very right to exist. Men who had already paid more than their fair share of dues now found themselves thrown into combat yet again, forming the core of the freshly minted Czechoslovak army and defending their nation in two separate wars, beating back both the Poles and the Hungarians in the years immediately after World War I. Having earned its independence on behalf of the legions, Czechoslovakia passed through the interwar years peacefully, though fell to Nazi German rule just before the outbreak of World War II in Europe. Upon the fall of the independent Czechoslovak state, the name of the Czechoslovak legion was raised once again, used this time to describe all of the Czechoslovak army soldiers fighting alongside the Allies in exile. With the end of World War II, the Czechoslovak army proper was restored, which lasted until the Soviet-sponsored communist takeover of the country in 1948. This communist Czechoslovak state lasted until 1989, when it was toppled by the peaceful demonstrations of the Velvet Revolution, replacing the totalitarian regime with a democratic government. But old habits die hard, and the very same nationalism that gave rise to Czechoslovakism eventually split the nation in two. In 1992, the Czechoslovakian parliament peacefully dissolved the Czechoslovak state. In its place, on the 1st of January 1993, stood two separate independent nations, the modern states of the Czech Republic and Slovakia, which both still stand to this day. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of X-Vision History. I know this episode was a little more zoomed out than what we're used to, but I hope you enjoyed it all the same. It was our honor to cover such a daring and determined stalwart group of men whose sacrifices and ideals shape the world we live in today. If you think we did a good job, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a 5-star review. We're a small production, and every rating counts. Keep your eyes out for our next episode, where we'll be jumping back in time to the Classical Age in order to explore the legendary history of the dawn of the Persian Empire. Remember to rate us 5 stars and share us with all your friends, and we'll see you next time on Expedition History. <laughs> <laughs>